Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special retrospective episode of Neuroscientist Talk Shop. On Thursday, November 16th, 2007, Bill Ross joined us for our third-ever Neuroscientist Talk Shop podcast. Bill is one of the pioneers who gave us the calcium imaging methods that have revolutionized neuroscience by providing an alternative to microelectrodes for detecting electrical activity. When we talked to him in 2007, calcium imaging was done mainly by filling neurons with a small molecule calcium indicator, like Fira or Oregon Green, either directly through an intracellular microelectrode or using membrane permeant versions of the indicators. The current generation of genetically coded calcium indicators were on the horizon, but were still in the future for more practical purposes. Bill talked to us about the origins of imaging, the range of possible applications, and the promise of imaging for replacing the microelectrode. The podcast was hosted by Salma Karashi, and Salma starts by asking Bill what motivated him to get started on calcium imaging. Today's Thursday, November 15, 2007. I'd like to welcome you to our neurobiology podcast series. Our distinguished guest today is William Ross of the New York Medical College in Valhalla. Um, on our panel today, we have Charles Wilson, as usual. Hey, that's me. And Carlos Palladini, as usual. Uh, hello, how are you doing? Fidel, yet Hi, again. Hi, how are you? And um, myself, my, I'm Salma Karashi. For more content on our guests and each of our panelists, please visit our website at snrp.utsa.edu. So welcome, everybody, um, especially you, Bill. So uh, not to make you seem like an old-timer, but you're halfway into your fourth decade now of visualizing activity-dependent changes in neurons from... Four decades. From your well, he's halfway into his half decade. From your from your vantage point as a pioneer in the field and a physicist by training, what were the big research questions you began with, and how have they changed? Wow, that's a that's a nice challenge. Uh, well, you know, I came into neuroscience and neurophysiology when there was still a large uh, concentration on people working on squid axons and channels that might explain action potentials in, in single uh, axons. And it somehow seemed to me, even then, as an outsider, that knowing something about what neurons looked like, and of course people knew something about the shape of neurons even back then, that if you had a view of the cell as sort of a single point or a single axon, that you must be missing something. And so I was very attracted by the possibility that there might be a technique that would let you look at uh, more than one location at the same time in a cell, or possibly, even though it wasn't my interest at that time, uh, more than one cell at the same time. And even then I had that perspective. And it attracted me that imaging was the most straightforward way of getting multi-site recordings of one kind or another about what happened in either networks or individual cells. And when I first came into it, not knowing very much about it, there was no calcium imaging at that time. There were, in fact, very few fluorescent dyes of any time. And the only people who were beginning to do imaging were people 
from Larry Cohen's lab, who had just discovered that there were voltage-sensitive dyes. And so I got attracted to that. I met him in Woods Hole, and I asked if I could join his lab. And then that first step, you know, led to many other steps, which I could go on in more detail. But it was, I had that perspective that it would be useful for neuroscience to look at more complex things than you could with uh, a single site technique. So voltage sensitive dyes are still in some sense the holy grail because we would like to be able to use them the way we use calcium imaging to look at voltage in all parts of the cell at once. But they've never really quite given us that because we can't seem to get the voltage sensitive dye into just one neuron at a time. So what was your experience with voltage-sensitive dyes? You started out with looking at neurons that were more dispersed or something like that to get around the problem? Well, you know, I mean, everybody has their own individual stories, and then there's sort of the big story, and then there's this story that's under the table. And I like this, I think. For me, the story <laughs> under the table was that I really didn't have a lot of patience, and I wasn't really that good with my hands. And coming from physics, where I never had to really deal with tissue, sort of dealing with tissue was sort of the uh, sort of pons asinorum for me, the sort of bridge that was difficult to cross, but which I had to learn to do before I could become a neuroscientist. So I wanted to learn to do it in uh, sort of an easier way. And voltage-sensitive dyes were really difficult. But I used them, but... Around the time when I was still in Larry Cohen's lab, uh, the first calcium indicators uh, came on the, into the marketplace, and this is before Fiora, before Roger Chen. Uh, but we had the opportunity at that time to test some calcium dyes, and so I was attracted, like many people would be, as a postdoc. Here was a chance for me to do something that was a little bit different than what my mentor was doing, uh, but still within the same general philosophy of doing imaging and multi-site things. And also it seemed to me it would be easier to do because there were so many problems with voltage-sensitive dyes, very small signals, photodynamic damage, untested toxicity, and as you alluded to, which this was a problem that didn't even occur until some decades later, that if you tried to put it inside a single cell so you could record from a single cell at one time and have it spread out within the dendrites, that these dyes took such a long time to diffuse in the cell, mostly because they were lipophilic and didn't just diffuse in the cytoplasm like calcium uh, sensors. So all these things really made it hard to do, and I didn't like to do hard experiments. It wasn't until I had students who I could ask to do the hard experiments that we began to do harder experiments. Salma then asked Bill a really general question about the role of technique in driving the direction of neuroscience. So I guess that's sort of a related question. Um, how, how much do you feel that the research questions have driven the development of the technical strategies as opposed to the other way around? 
like for example before the calcium indicators came around were people talking about looking at calcium and how did that shape the field or was it the other way around in the imaging field or which even by giving it that name implies that it's a technique driven thing rather than a question driven thing people have sort of known sometimes specifically and somewhat less specifically the idea that you alluded to Charlie that if you could when you talked about the Holy Grail that somehow if you could record from many things at the same time that this would tell you something new okay. so this was an example of where a technique was clearly going to tell you something new it's not always the case but it was clear that if you could do something that would let you record from many different places in a cell or many different cells that you were bound to learn something new and it's always been my opinion that a large part of biology is observation. Even when we think, when we have to apply to the NIH, you always have to give, you know, uh, uh, significance and the question that you're answering. The truth is, a lot of what you're going to find out is just observation. That so that if you can just look carefully with a practiced eye, you're going to learn something. And imaging was certainly a very good example of that. Uh, idea. Calcium imaging is, of course, a measure of calcium concentration, not so much voltage changes. Bill talks next about the relationship between calcium imaging and spiking and how calcium imaging came to be used as a proxy for voltage recording. And then, in fact, there was also this early work with a quorum that had first shown that you could see a calcium signal in the squid axon. In the axon itself, not the terminal region, just the sort of main transmitting part of the uh, axon. And it, some of the calcium came through calcium channels, some of the calcium came through sodium channels. And what this, if you thought about it in terms of not what you could learn about the squid axon so much, but what this might potentially tell you in terms of understanding com more complex circuits, is that in any neuron, when there was a voltage change, there might be a calcium change coming through voltage-sensitive channels in the cell, and that this could be a sort of a, a different way of doing what voltage-sensitive dyes were doing. After all, a certain amount of what voltage-sensitive dyes were supposed to do was to give you an accurate representation of the voltage change in the cell. But another part of what voltage-sensitive dyes were supposed to do when you looked at circuits was that any time there was a flash of light and it didn't have to actually be a perfect uh, representation of the action potential, but whenever there was an optical flash, it would tell you that there was an action potential. And in a similar way, uh, calcium change, even though it's we all know now that the time course of a calcium change from an action potential doesn't in any way resemble the time course of the voltage change of an action potential. But it could, if you detected this single flash from calcium, it would tell you that an action potential occurred. And we sort of were aware of that possibility almost right from the beginning, okay, that it could be potentially an indicator for electrical activity as well as telling you something about 
signaling in cells where calcium was the important signaling molecule. So right from the beginning, we knew both of these pathways could be explored. Of course, it took a long time before many of the fruits of these ideas developed, uh, but we knew even then that calcium could be used in many different ways uh, if you could image it. I mean, the imaging of calcium could tell you many interesting things. Bill then talked uh, for a while about the buffering effect of calcium indicators. This is it a practical uh, problem with this method, and it's the way that measurement of calcium disturbs calcium concentration. This continues to be an issue for everyone using calcium indicators for any purpose. So one of the interesting things about calcium as, um, as a signal in the cell is its slow dynamics compared to action potentials. So in a way, if we're interested in calcium signals as just a way of telling where when action potentials happen they're imperfect because they last so much longer than calcium than action potentials do but uh, the fact that they have this long time course means that calcium can sort of represent the history of neural activity for the for other processes in the side of the cell. And many people have been excited about that and there's been a sort of notion that calcium concentration encodes firing rate in the sense that it provides a the variable that the cell can monitor. If it wants that, to that's exactly right. But this particular idea, which I think is true to some extent, has a little been a little bit uh, um, uh, clouded over by some technical issues that have sort of made this idea, I think, not been exactly right. And this relates to something that I was talking about earlier in the day, which is that when you put a calcium indicator into the cell, it's a buffer, and it slows down uh, the measured calcium transient compared to what the transient would be in a cell if there were no added calcium. And so consequently, if, it, if any one individual transient is made to be artificially longer because of this buffering, you're gonna get this buildup of signal from multiple action potentials that would never have occurred to that extent if there were not this added indicator. And the history of the field is one in which people in the beginning were trying to detect the calcium change, and so they were interested in either A, putting a lot of indicator in the cell so they can be sure of detecting a calcium change, or second, they would put an indicator in the cell that was particularly tuned to the calcium level in the cell, so it would be sensitive. But this would mean that it would be a buffer because its uh, KD would be exactly at the range of calcium in the cell itself. And in a sense, these two, what were thought to be good qualities, to have an indicator with a KD close to resting calcium and to put a lot of indicator in the cell are absolutely the wrong things to do if you want to uh, actually follow accurately what calcium is doing in the cell. Sama asked Bill about genetically encoded calcium indicators, which at the time were still in the early stages of development, not yet become practical. Bill predicts the impact that these indicators will have. Since, since we're talking about developments, do you uh, see any impact of genetically encoded calcium sensors on your research? How do you feel about them in general and your utility? Well, if there's ever something that's really sexy in neuroscience is genetically encoded indicators and um, but it's, a, it's an elusive goal 
I would say that in terms of genetically encoded indicators for function, like calcium or chloride uh, or some other things that we could go into later, uh, these things are just getting to the point where they can be used. In addition, some of these genetically encoded indicators are nonlinear because they like, re- might require two calcium ions to bind, and so they'll have a kind of a sigmoidal uh, response. Okay. So these are defects of a certain kind. So you really don't see them being used very much in a practical manner. There are not very many papers that use them. There are a few papers that have found sort of special situations where uh, the, the properties that I mentioned, that is their weaker signal and nonlinearity, really don't matter that much. But in terms of recording from neurons, like most of us have done with the ordinary calcium indicator dyes, it's still something on the horizon. But having said that, I mean, I'm as attracted to something sexy as anybody else, and I'm, there's going to be great opportunities for these indicators and this approach to be uh, improved, and we all expect it's going to make a tremendous impact. Why? For several reasons. First, you can load them into many cells. Second, with the right promoters, you can put them into only certain subsets of cells. And third, with the right promoter, you can have them only appear at certain times in development. These are sort of very obvious statements, but there's no question that the ability to do that will have a big impact on interpreting uh, the experiments. In addition to calcium imaging, Bill pioneered the use of sodium indicators, which in some ways ought to be better for measuring electrical activity than calcium. Bill addresses the benefits and challenges of sodium imaging and its promise as a measure of neuronal activity uh, and why that promise has still not been exploited. Since we're talking about sodium, I think it's probably worth it to um, just look at the history of that a bit. So you were the first, I think you, you, were, you and David were the first to demonstrate that sodium transients could be visualized in vitro. And so in the 15 years since, only a handful of people have demonstrated successfully that it can be done and it hasn't really been used um, on a large scale. So what are the issues that have impeded its popularity? I think it might be worth talking about um, as, a, as a research tool in general. So. And what's changed, I guess, now that it's... Well, it's, it's hard to say for sure, because I can't put myself in the minds of other scientists. But as Torsten Wiesel, one of my advisors at a certain point in my scientific career, pointed out to me, he says, scientists are driven by fashion as much as anybody else, and measuring sodium has never really been in fashion. Uh, my own speculation, and it's purely speculation, is that this is for two reasons. Uh, one is that it's, it is harder to do to make measurements of sodium concentrations in, in cells given the current level of indicators that are available. Of course, this is a bit, uh, 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 how I catch-22, because if there were more interest in it, then maybe they would develop better indicators. So we'll have to see which comes first. 
But the second possible reason is that unlike calcium, which exactly as you said uh, earlier, uh, Fidel, that uh, uh, we know that calcium is an important signaling molecule, so people had a motivation for looking at calcium concentration changes in cells. Whereas I think most neuroscientists would have the prejudice that sodium concentration changes are just sort of a, an accidental consequence of the fact that cells fire action potentials and that there's not really much you can learn from looking at, from measuring them. Again, this is a prejudice, and again, I can't be sure that that's what other people think. Bill also shared some of his insights about the scientific life and his successful long-term scientific collaboration with his wife, Rahama Lasser-Ross. I wanted to just switch gears a little bit. Uh, I hope you don't mind us prying a little bit into your personal life. And I'll give Charlie the floor for this, actually, but I just wanted to mention <laughs> that um, Charlie had... Uh, had described you and your wife, Nehama Lasseros, as one of the, I think you said one of the great neuroscience collaborative research couples, something like that. And so I was wondering if maybe you wanted to talk a little bit about that collaboration. Charlie might have, might he, I think he I was just thinking about how that got, collaboration got started and, uh, <laughs> and what, well, how it works. As a married person, as anybody knows who's been married, or even (laughs) if you haven't been married, the question of how it works is something that nobody really can answer. Uh, Certainly not me. Uh, You need more the the mind of a novelist than the mind of a neuroscientist. So I'll give a superficial answer to that uh, question. So we actually uh, brought two different things to our work together. Uh, Nahama is a physical chemist by training. She has a PhD in physical chemistry from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And so she was very comfortable with uh, uh, all the sort of uh, dynamics of indicator dyes and fluorescence changes and these kind of things. So we, as we got into this, it was very easy to talk about it with her uh, just at home, uh, so I could, you know, bring my work home uh, to some extent. And then, for reasons which had more to do with uh, the dynamics of our children and uh, where we spend our time together and how we work, we we thought that we could actually work a lot of things out a little easier if we were both working in the same place. And uh, so we tried that. And like any long-term relationship, uh, working or otherwise, it has had its ups and downs. And after a while, you develop a set of parameters and working relationships that try to keep things uh, going forward. But that mostly, we each bring sort of different backgrounds and talents uh, to the work uh, together. Uh, and it's been uh, fairly fruitful, like you said. Thanks for joining us in this retrospective Neuroscientist Talk Shop podcast from 2007. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Well, thank you for being with us. Thanks, everyone, for showing up today. And uh, this was a great discussion. And look for us uh, next, uh, well, next week is Thanksgiving, so the week after, hopefully.